change is messy, and change is not only messy, but change is political. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, where we binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Lori Edelman. And I'm Layla Darabi. This episode, we watched Loot and asked, do billionaires deserve to shape the world? Lori, are you binging or cringing? Layla, this week I am binging the best of Twitter threads. You may have seen Elon Musk is currently driving Twitter into the ground and many folks are making preparations for what they're going to do now that Twitter is most likely an even more harmful and dystopic space than it has been in the past. So lots of folks have are mourning Twitter who have been on Twitter for a really long time and created community there. And they are sharing best of Twitter threads with some of their favorite tweets of all time. For those of you who are not on Twitter or haven't seen these, we can drop some of our favorites in the show notes. But I'm just really enjoying a kind of nostalgic look back at a space that I've had a complicated relationship with. I'm also binging right now holiday gift guides, but only for the window shopping. I try not to buy overpriced things online anymore, but I do really get a lot of calm and peace from just looking at beautifully curated lists of pretty things. And then I really suggest leaving those lists and going and making a donation in someone's name or sending people books. There are lots of amazing end of year reading lists coming up. I'm excited among many things to check out Chelsea Manning's new book, readme.text. So it's a lot of internet content and quite a time to be online. I will put the same question back to you. Are you binging or cringing this week? Oh, I'm cringing and semi-related, the link being Elon Musk and Twitter. But I think if you've been following the wackadoodle memos he's been sending his new staff and uh, laying people off, the one big topic of conversation that comes up around this end of year time is vacation. Are we taking it? Do we take time off? Are we allowed to take time off? Is there any way out of this workhorse culture that we seem to be stuck in, in the US in particular? I think there's like a tech competitiveness. I definitely know uh, we're going to talk about altruism today in the nonprofit space. There's like a mission-driven push to just be always working and we could always be doing more. And I am just coming off the very luxurious position of having taken my three-year delayed honeymoon and took off two weeks in a row. And you shouldn't have to get married to take two weeks off in a row without people batting an eye. I, like you, do a lot of global work. And so many of my colleagues around the world are just out for all of August. They're just out for half of December. And in this country, I think we have such a unhealthy relationship. This is not news. This is not a hot take. But I've been really thinking about it because as a manager in the workplace, we have a lot of conversations about how do we get people to take more vacation. And I just want to put out there that one of the best ways is to model that and take it ourselves. Hell so, yeah. Anyone in the position to take vacation, take some and force your staff to as well. Not going to solve all our problems, but it's something on my mind right now as we head into the season of us ostensibly all having time off at the same time at the end of the year and thinking about resolutions for the next year. Oh, said so beautifully. Normalize piecing the F out for all of August. <laughs> I always envy all of our colleagues globally who do that. Very well said. And as you hinted at today, we are actually talking about a very timely subject. So we are covering the television show Loot. This is the show that starred Maya Rudolph as a billionaire divorcee named Molly Novak in the show. It aired on Apple TV Plus. And 
we feel like now is the right time to do the show. This show lives at the intersection of a lot of things that we care about as the cringe watchers. We have both been on both ends of philanthropy. We both come from the donor-funded and driven world of nonprofits, and we are on the now privileged position of working directly in philanthropy. Lori, maybe in preparation for this show, but just in general lately, I've been thinking so much about my career in nonprofits and now as an advisor to some foundations and philanthropists. I think that for the majority of my career, my salary has been paid exclusively by billionaires. My very first job was the result of a big Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation grant. You know, so I sometimes feel like a fraud thinking about the self-righteousness that I derive from coming from the nonprofit space. Even now as a for-profit consultant to nonprofits, I have a lot of identity and pride wrapped up in that. And if you step back and think about, yes, but where's the money coming from? It's not coming from that many people. And I think what we want to talk about today is how scary that is. Some of those people are doing really great work. Some of these foundations are funding incredible work. The problem is, I think, the problem that's driving a lot of the issues in our world today, which is too few people making decisions, too few people holding all the money, whether or not they claim that they're going to give it all away. That's exactly right. And especially the past two weeks have revealed a lot about this phenomenon. And I want to make sure all of our listeners are like kind of following why we're having this conversation right now. And I'm especially curious, Layla, if you've been following the fall of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. Only in such an embarrassingly cursory way that I am uh, waiting like the listeners for you to just break it down for me. <laughs> okay. I know you've been following this based on our text chain, and I know I'm just skirting by. There's something about polyamorous pods. <laughs> I know it has to do with crypto. I know I should understand more about crypto than I do, but please, what's going on? Yeah. And this ties directly to the themes that we're going to be talking about today with the show. So I'm happy to do that. I'm not going to do a crypto explainer. Don't worry. It's really only tangentially related to crypto, but basically FTX was and, and continues to be in a very sad way, a crypto exchange, which is just a way of saying it's a place where you can buy and sell Bitcoin and other kinds of cryptocurrency, digital assets. And we are not here to get into that. It's not really important to what we're talking about today. But all you really really need to know is that FTX was very large. It was one of the largest exchanges of its type. And at its peak, it was valued at $25 billion. That's billion with a B. So there's a lot of money flowing around this. And the chief executive of FTX, which is a man named Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF as he was known, was a crypto billionaire to the tune of over $22 billion. So just a little bit over a year ago, Forbes actually ran like a fawning cover story describing him as the richest 20 something in the world and lifting up his altruistic and philanthropic endeavors because he became a major democratic donor and an evangelist for a movement called effective altruism. And that is what is really relevant to our discussion today. So how much do you know about this movement, Leela? I mean, I have heard of the term effective altruism, and I've read some polite 
take down think pieces about whether or not it's succeeding, but you tell me where it all came from and what it has to do with today. (laughs) And the reason that I have been following this for a little bit longer is that I actually have a friend professor who invited me to Cambridge over the summer to do a talk with some folks who study existential risk and who are really passionate about effective altruism. So I've been kind of following the movement from the academic side. And it came from the academic corridors in a way. It's a movement that's really ties back to an Oxford philosopher named Will McCaskill. He's a young man. He's, you know, a young white guy. He aims to use evidence and reason to be able to determine the best ways, quote unquote, the best ways, the most effective ways of doing good in the world. And this is where I kind of I'm going to pull my I told you so moment. I hate to do it, but I do have a time stamped receipt (laughs) of my critiques of this work um, because I spoke about this, like I said, at Cambridge over the summer. So we'll drop the link to the YouTube video of my talk in our show notes and you can you know, here are some of the more fundamental reasons that I was concerned about the effective altruism movement and what it represented. But in this case, what's really timely for our discussion today is that effective altruism has taken a huge hit in terms of its public reputation alongside the downfall of FTX. And the reason for that is because SBF, the head of FTX, was very involved with the effective altruism movement, as I mentioned. And more importantly, he publicly stated that the passion that he had for effective altruism was the reason that he was determined to make as much money as possible through his work with crypto, through his work with FTX. So now that FTX has crashed, again, for a number of complicated reasons, namely fraud, the same things that are driving a lot of public criticism of FTX and SBF are also, you know, coming around to expressed doubt around effective altruism and whether it was really all that it was being suggested that it was, or was it just a way to shield folks who were obscenely, egregiously rich from criticism of the methods that they used to get rich. And one of the main sort of smoking guns that people have around this is that there were sort of DMs that were published by Vox last week on Wednesday, and basically a reporter who was sort of a friend of SBF's chatted him and asked him if all his talk about morals and ethics was, quote, mostly a front. And his response was, yeah. So that is pretty damning and pretty upsetting, but also not surprising to anyone who's been following, you know, effective altruism and like sort of leveling critiques at them for many years. And then the last thing that I'll sort of explain before we get into this TV show and talk about some of the bigger issues at play is that there is another character in all of this, and her name is Caroline Allison, and she has to do with the title of our podcast today. And she is involved in all of this because she was the head of a hedge fund that was linked to FTX. It was called Alameda Research. What we found out now is that these are basically two sides of the same house. At the time, it was portrayed that they were more separate than they were. But Caroline Ellison ran Alameda Research, which is the hedge fund. And she was also a former romantic partner of SBF. So they were involved in what is 
being known as a polycule or polyamorous relationship with a number of other people. And she kept a now deleted blog that she called World Optimization, which is a bit of a very sad kind of goldmine in the sense that if you read it, you're like, oh, yeah, rich people really are the worst. (laughs) And, you know, she sort of admits to everything from feeling like feminism and the sexual revolution was a mistake to, you know, getting into some casual race science, no big deal. And then at one point, of course, the smoking gun for today appears to have renamed her blog Fake Charity Nerd Girl. So again, getting at this issue of not really believing what they're talking about when they're obsessing publicly over measurement and data to fuel do-gooderism around the world, but really using sort of these mantles of charity to enrich themselves, to justify taking big risks, to push getting richer and richer and richer, and to have very little to no oversight over the risks that they'll take to make more money. I propose that you always do our explainers because (laughs) I try to listen to every episode. I'm definitely going to re-listen to this one a few times. That is the most succinct breakdown of all of this fucked up crypto sexuality down with philanthropy, down with feminism, clusterfuck that I've been trying to decode from many, many articles. And just thank you. I appreciate you (laughs) for breaking that down. I could not have strung together half of that. I didn't even know all of that was going on. I just vaguely have been skimming articles like, okay, these guys bad. To the point of the text, I think what's interesting, but maybe not surprising right now is that this kind of douchey elite just does not understand irony. They think that they're being ironic, changing the name of a blog to fake charity girl saying, yeah, I was all a scam. But it is actually the most earnest statements they could be making. And I think one of the things that I want to get into today is how we parse all these bad actors, because a lot of the do-gooder world, as we said, is funded by very few sources. And you can't have a concentration of wealth without that money coming from very bad places. The show Loot that we're going to talk to today is about a billionaire divorcee. Clearly, Maya Rudolph's character is modeled, at least in part, not entirely, after Mackenzie Scott, Jeff Bezos of Amazon billionaire fame's ex-wife, who is currently trying to give away all of her money or some of her money. While meanwhile, Jeff Bezos has claimed that he's going to give away, quote unquote, most of his money, but seems to not be able to start doing that. And it is, I think, human nature to want to separate things into black and white, good and bad. I, you know, in thinking about that claim that you want to make a lot of money because you're going to do better with it, you're going to give it away. You're the one who knows how to do something with the money is, I think, the heart of this conversation. It definitely is the heart of the conversation in the feminist and nonprofit spaces that I work. My clients and former places of work are all grappling with, there's this concept of trust-based philanthropy. How do we change this power dynamic where the people with the money design all of the goals, all of the programs, push money onto other people and say, here in your country, at your organization, this is what you need to do. I need you to take this money and you need to report back on every cent and you can't use it to hire staff. There are all kinds of problems that we can get into with the traditional model of philanthropy, which has to do with foundations and individuals who like to fund programs that they can see, that they can put their own name on, that they can claim credit for without really asking the people doing grass moves, movement building, organizing work, what do you need? 
what will make change. And there's a big conversation happening in the world that we live in right now around trust and how do we get more money into the hands of more change makers in a more nimble way that doesn't require heavy reporting, that doesn't imply that the person giving the money knows more than the person getting the money, that develops more of a peer-to-peer relationship. And that's why it's called trust-based. And it's an imperfect and new model. And I think, you know, as we get into the episode we want to talk to today, I think the themes of the episode are altruism, trust, and power and decision-making. And these are really heavy topics. You can hear from the way Lori and I are describing them are very personal. They hit home. But we chose a comedy and there are some light and I think sharp takes on these topics. So I'm excited to get into this episode with you. Absolutely. So appreciate that. And you hit the nail on the head. Well, maybe we should tee up the episode and get into it. And we'll expand on a lot of the stuff that we just kind of introduced. And I don't know if we should disclose that we have both engaged with Mackenzie Scott. My organization has received money from her, but we really are not just talking about her today. We're talking about these bigger issues. And the way that we're talking about them is by looking at season one, episode 10 of Loot. And this episode is called Silver Moon Summit. And we love this episode because it is kind of a really comical take on a Davos-like meeting. So Davos, of course, where the World Economic Forum happens, and it's basically a huge, very exclusive gathering of wealthy world makers who get together and make decisions about how they're going to be moving through the world for the next year and more. And they're like snowshoeing through the Alps with gold plated hot chocolate bottles. This is just how I imagine I've never been. But anyway, this episode of Loot did a really good job of sort of parodying what it might be like for Maya Rudolph's character, Molly Novak, to attend a Davos with her new boyfriend in the show who has convinced her to invest in a water cleaning device that has promised to be able to take dirty water and make it clean and drinkable. So I think that's enough setup for you all for us to be able to get into the episode. And without further ado, we will jump into a discussion of this episode. Hope you enjoy. Let's get into the episode. Before we begin the scene-by-scene dissection of loot, I just want to reiterate for our listeners, you don't have to have seen this show. We're going to recap what you need to hear. The character of Molly Burke, who is a newly found billionaire after getting divorced, realizes in her divorce that she has a foundation and decides with her new expanses of time to get super involved. She finds when she goes to that foundation, a woman named Sophia, who is running her philanthropic work, who cares deeply about it, who comes from the communities they serve. And the opening scene of this episode, you see Sophia in a cab on her way to the airport, passing through presumably Skid Row in Los Angeles, where she engages in a conversation with her Uber driver who refers to the people living in tents, the unhoused people they pass as quote unquote, those people. And that sparks Sophia to go off on the Uber driver and explain why she cares. Are there ways to help structural change? There's a lot of work being put into a lot of this stuff. I heard all that shit. That shit doesn't really work. I think those people need to get off their asses and get a job. Okay, pull over. What? I have a lifelong policy that if someone says those people are in the conversation, so thank you. We have a nice day. But it's an interesting scene, I think, because it reminds us that Sophia is very different from Molly. 
she is dedicated to this work, has thought through the systemic issues, not just the individual she's quote unquote saving, but the systemic issues that would lead to, say, a houselessness problem, a housing problem, racism, assumptions made. She goes off on the cab driver in a way that illustrates that she's been doing this work and also that implies that she knows the hardship and that she comes from a community that is less resourced than the Molly character. And so one of the things I like about this show is the is the yin and yang of Molly and Sophia. Yeah, I really love that. And I also like this because it shows that it's not like only billionaires that have difficult attitudes about social problems, right? All of us have opinions about social problems, what causes them, who's to blame. And there's also a lot of intra-class struggle. So the Uber driver is ostensibly not wealthy themselves, or, you know, they could be farther from an unhoused person than they probably are under a different kind of structure or situation. So in theory, they would have some solidarity around a billionaire, but because of the way that you know, our world works and a lot of the narratives were fed, they see the unhoused people as sort of less than as a problem as well. And I like that, you know, this is a character building moment for Sophia, because we also see that, you know, she's sort of getting it from all sides. She's not only getting it from sort of her clueless wealthy boss, but, you know, also members of her own community are sort of not sure what to do with some of the social problems that she's trying to fix. And so, you know, she really is a unique kind of person. It takes a unique kind of person to do like nonprofit leadership work and to do community building work and organizing work and to sort of be consistent in lots of different kinds of scenarios and situations. And so I really like that they gave this sort of character building moment. I do too. Although, you know, after laying on all that praise, it does always make me cringe a little bit to have the do-gooder character is always in the suit, always the Debbie Downer, always super serious, can't dress down even to ride to the airport, is just constantly, I told you so, I know better, self-righteous. And so I do think that despite the billionaire character of Molly starting out as despicable and presumably the arc of the show is her growing there is something that lightens the show about the billionaire character being ridiculous and i think it seems like this where molly's not in the picture and you're just seeing sophia being serious doing serious sophia like stuff where i miss the colorful wardrobe and the wacky laughable statements of molly because molly sort of exists for me to beat her down and say well at least i'm not that bad you know, I'm not a billionaire squandering uh, private jet hours. So I like this setup for the show, but I'm glad that it moved quickly past this scene. Yeah, I mean, and I personally have found this across Apple TV's sort of offerings that there's some sort of stilted character development or just something that just feels a little, bit, a little bit surface. Exactly. Like, you know, HBO, they are not. But that being said, in this case, while the actual characters were not written with depth. The casting is spot on. I love MJ Rodriguez for the Sophia character. We love trans casting, but we also just love sort of the demeanor of MJ matching to this character really well. And I think this is like a great next step for her coming off of a show like Pose. And I love that Sophia's character do they even talk about her being trans? No. I don't even know if she's trans in the show. I love the casting where you see a rising trans actor. There's no Che Diaz 
just constantly reintroducing themselves and their sexuality and their gender as, as a sole personalities trait. This is a fully formed, well, a semi-formed character, as fully formed as an Apple TV Plus character <laughs> as one can get. Exactly. And I also love the Maya Rudolph casting choice because she also is like a kind of a baby of nepotism, you know, who's made her own way in Hollywood. But I just think there's a lot of texture to both casting decisions in this case for the reasons you're describing. And to note that they're both black women, which adds a layer that obviously in real life, Mackenzie Scott does not bring to the conversation. It's interesting to see how race and class and position come into the show. We don't get a lot of Molly's cousin in this show, but one of the people working at the foundation is related to Molly and is a constant reminder of sort of where she came from, the views and experiences of her, the black side of her family. And that's just a conversation that's sort of absent from IRL philanthropy, in my opinion. Totally. And we didn't have time to get into this episode. But one of my favorite other episodes of the season was when Molly goes and, you know, visits her black family. And, you know, we see all of the tensions that come up for her as she has gotten mega rich and her black family does not want to be like bought off. They do not want her to be able to buy their love. They like sitting and playing spades on their rickety card table. Thank you very much. And, you know, at one point it comes out that she wasn't able to attend a wedding of one of her family members that really meant a lot to them that she would have been there and she didn't go and she had tried to send like an expensive gift and they were not having it and there's a lot of tension around that and that did feel very authentic to me again maybe like a little bit hit you over the head in terms of the plot but I think some of the dynamics were really real and felt authentically black in terms of how a family might approach a situation like this and I can just speak as uh, our non-black host that uh the gifts one gives and the weddings one doesn't attend <laughs> can be held over one's head for generations. That's a universal experience, I think. Definitely a person of color experience. Yeah, that's family right there, for better or worse. I love this scene, but I'm eager to get onto the scene that you're going to break down for us next, because I do think this is the heart of the episode and why we're here. Amazing. Let's go to our second scenario. So I mentioned this in the setup, but Molly has a new boyfriend in this episode, and he is a smooth suave, also a fellow mega rich guy. And he has encouraged her to invest in something called the Arroyo water purification machine. And not only that, he has enlisted her to be the face of the machine and to present it at this Davos-like summit called the Silver Moon Summit. And a lot of her folks within her foundation, mainly and notably Sophia, are encouraging her to bring some more skepticism to this. And they're questioning why she is being asked to do this. And they suggest that she put the brakes on it and do more research. But she ignores them and flies to the Silver Moon Summit and gets right on stage to do this presentation. Unfortunately for Molly, the presentation is actually entails a live demonstration. And so they put really nasty, disgusting sewage water into the machine. It's supposed to come out the other side clean and clear, and she will drink it on camera. However, the machine malfunctions, and she ends up having to drink a disgustingly dirty glass of water just to save face on stage. The Arroyo works within seconds. It combines a thermal drying process with reverse osmosis purification. And not only that, it produces electricity at the same time. All right, you ready to see this thing in action? I'm ready. Here we go. 
Okay. Drum roll, please. Oh, hey, that doesn't seem right. And um, you guys, you guys turned the machine on, right? I would just add that the new boyfriend is played by Olivier Martinez. <laughs> and once you see him, you could see why one might make some questionable investments. And drink poop water on, on stage? <laughs> I don't know. Is he poop water worthy, Layla? <laughs> I don't know. But I don't know if you remember when he was dating Halle Berry, he got into a scuffle with her baby daddy. Oh, yes. That's the guy. You remember that? Yes. He was the new younger lover and then the father of her kid kids got arrested because of their scuffle but i will always know him as the guy who fucked diane lane in the bathroom and i think it's unfaithful very hot movie worth only watching that scene you can fast forward richard gear and get straight to olivia martinez we're gonna need to do another podcast episode on this but <laughs> yeah maybe we can do our uh, steamiest scenes in film of all time list <laughs> anyway like i'm just saying for context <laughs> molly is a character <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't just invest in anyone, but she has been full on seduced. That's right. And, you know, I don't think this is also so unrealistic, right? We've seen a billionaire obsession with similar silver bullet solutions. And a lot of them are driven behind the scenes by personal relationships and not so altruistic impulses. So it's not like, you know, she wouldn't benefit if this product that she invested in gets replicated and shipped all over the world, right? They're doing it for charity, but they're also doing it for credibility, for publicity, and for profit in many, many cases. Yeah, and I think it gets back to what we're talking about, where so much of philanthropy and technology today is so centered around the cult of personality. Like This whole scene is giving Elizabeth Holmes. It's like, I have the, as you said, silver bullet solution to something. And that is the problem. People want to fund a solution. They want to brand it with their name. And actual change is much messier, much more complicated. It's two steps forward, one step back. It's 20 steps in the wrong direction. It's having to wait two years until you can convince everybody involved that you all want the same thing. It's messy. And that individual driven philanthropy doesn't leave a lot of room for that in this show or in real life. And you could see the appeal of this little piece of technology is going to save us all because we've all heard that we've all bought into that in our lives. You know, it's like an infomercial for weight loss. It's the same scheme. The solution is simpler than you think. And I have the solution. And by affiliating yourself with me today, you are in early with the smart kids. I think that's so right. And you get at something really important, which is that change is messy and change is not only messy, but change is political. Like we get to social change through politics and oftentimes through struggle. And philanthropy is about the conversion of capital to power. And it requires attention to power in order to really understand what philanthropy is. It is not this kind of apolitical, you know, kind of innocuous, solutions-driven, we only rely on evidence vacuum. It is completely interconnected with issues that we tend to think of as more, quote-unquote, polarized, as more political, as more involved with power. So even if you Think about some of the most seemingly innocuous issues, let's say preventing gender-based violence and assault or 
saving a woman from dying in childbirth. Some of these issues that we think of as just kind of purely altruistic to solve, we should all be able to just band together and prevent a woman from dying in childbirth, right? That seems really straightforward. You can pretty quickly get from obvious to controversial in terms of what this apolitical philanthropy might term it as in very speedy ways. So for example, if you want to prevent maternal death and morbidity, one of the leading causes of that is unsafe abortion. That's the quote unquote data. That's what the evidence shows. Do you have a solutions machine to tackle that issue without bringing together stakeholders who are deeply involved in the community to really address the hearts and minds piece of that work, the culture change part of that work, the organizing part of that work, the anti-stigma part of that work. You know, these are things that cannot be fixed by a machine. And I think this episode starts to get at breaking some of that down, again, in a really accessible way, in a way that's geared towards entertainment. But I am surprised and impressed by how far they got in a TV show at getting at some of these really, you know, kind of heady issues that you and I tend to deal with in our day-to-day work lives. When you're talking about data-driven solutions, I think you can veer too much in the other direction too. You have people come and say, the numbers show this is the leading cause of death in this country. We must focus on this thing. When, you know, solutions are more human than that. The world might not be ready to focus on that thing. There might be someone who's already got a solution to something else that's half a step from the pipeline. When I saw this demonstration and I was thinking about the equivalents for our world, I was thinking a lot about microbicides, the female-driven way to prevent HIV and other STIs. There was a time in you know, the early 2000s when like Bill Gates and a lot of other people were saying, we can solve HIV, we need to throw money at the problem. And they put a lot of money and energy into testing something that women could control. And I think that's a good idea. I'm not saying we don't invest in those things. I think we need methods beyond a condom and beyond pills so that everybody can have a say in in their own health care prevention. But What I cringe at is when people start to describe their solution or the thing that they're funding or the thing that they're championing as the silver bullet, as the one thing that must move forward. Because if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And what a lot of people investing in things like microbicides were saying was, this is the only reason HIV is an epidemic. If only women had a women-controlled prevention method, then we could turn the tides on this epidemic. That's implying that HIV epidemic is a lot simpler than it is. I think that's exactly right. And To me, you're getting at something really important, which is that the term data-driven implies a level of objectivity, which really only the billionaire who is in a total bubble and surrounded by yes-men can afford to obtain. So they are the ones that get to say that their data is pointing at the right thing, and they can pick and choose which data that is. So, you know, in the example of the effective altruists, they became obsessed with bed nets because they saw that for the cheapest investment, they could quote unquote, save the most lives by preventing malaria and buying bed nets. But what they didn't realize was that First of all, when you do that, you are coming in and incentivizing in a community that they exclusively focus on this problem at the expense of other problems that, you know, because if they want to go after the money that you're offering, this is the investment that they now have to make. So you're taking the decision 
out of local hands to even be flexible or adaptable. Let's take the COVID-19 pandemic. Are you giving in a way that allows them to pivot if the threat to their community changes or in order to spend the money in ways that will save the most lives or serve their community in ways that you can't even predict or imagine? And then You know, we also know that there are so many social and cultural factors that contribute to, you know, how these solutions get implemented. And so if you're only looking at, you know, one piece of that overall puzzle, you're not going to get results. And you're essentially getting free unpaid labor from community organizers, leaders, change makers, people who are doing that, quote unquote, messier work. And then you're claiming victory or success when, you know, let's say an HIV number goes down because you invested in a product. Exactly. And so if we were going to play out the scene, let's say Molly's pitch had gone well at this show, then who's going to build those machines? Who's going to manufacture them? Who's going to create the contracts? Who's going to get rich off of this solution? And let's say they took off and they were very effective and Molly's investment triggered many other investments and this very successful water treatment machine became the the gold standard and was being rolled out around the world as part of humanitarian efforts. Then by the example you were giving, Lori, local organizations would have the incentive to switch their focus to water treatment, even if they weren't working on it already, because that's where the available money and supplies are. And so that's, you know, you go from someone feeling good about giving a TED talk on a stage a soundbite being picked up in media and everybody dropping at dinner parties, I have the one solution. This is how we're going to solve poverty. This is how we're going to solve the world's power dynamics. It's very dangerous to latch on to individual solutions. And it's very easy to be seduced by not just, you know, sexy, half Spanish, half French philanthropists, (laughs) but by the idea. It's very sexy to feel like there is a solution because I think we're all up against such huge and trans-systemic problems all the time that it feels exciting when someone says it's simple. That's really true. It's a good point. I want to get to our last scenario, but you made me think about why the show had this fail and how they portrayed like the lesson that Molly was supposed to take. And they sort of did a shorthand for everything we just said by having Sophia say, you shouldn't do this, it's a sales pitch, and then having Molly do it anyway and fail, which I guess I would give the show like a C on that because the implication there, if you kind of think about it, is that the main problem with the water machine is that it might have made money. And I think based on what we're both kind of getting at, that it really isn't the point. It isn't the biggest problem whether the water machine was for profit or not. Like I'm all for for profit solutions that work as part of like a broader strategy. But I understand why the show had to like do that as a shorthand. What do you think about that? That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that because I agree. I disagree with Sophia's reason for rejecting the water treatment machine before the demo because she's saying flat out, I refuse to work on this for profit venture. After it fails, then I could see Sophia resigning. So to move us to our final scenario, the machine fails. Molly's new boyfriend runs away, asks her to run away with him. Sophia has resigned from the foundation out of principle. In the final twist, Molly realizes what she needs to do. She writes a speech. She retakes the stage at the Davos Lake meeting, and she gives a speech basically saying, we're all hypocrites. Why should we be the only ones on this stage? And I pledge to give away all my money, Mackenzie Scott style. So starting today, 
I'm going to give away all my money, all 120 billion. Remember when I had 87 billion? Well, it grew. Just now, while I've been talking to you, I've probably made about 20 million? How fucking sick is that? It's that speech at the end that kind of triggered our whole conversation today. So I think one of the questions I have for you, Lori, is, is this Monty's Millions approach to the current billionaires in the world working? If all the billionaires gave away all their money, would we solve our problems? It's a great question. I really love that she has pledged to give her money away. And I think this was probably too much to get at, again, in like an entertainment-oriented Apple TV Plus show. So I think it's great that they got us this far. But for me, pledging to give away your money is amazing. That's great. And then the kind of next big important thing is in the how. And it sounds very nerdy. It sounds like almost like you're asking for too much, like, oh, this billionaire already pledged to give away all their money. Now you want to demand, you know, specific conditions around that money. But actually, the how matters so much. And I think Mackenzie Scott is a perfect example of this, because however benevolent a philanthropist's intentions, anyone's intentions to donate money is to exert control over lives. It is an act of world making to engage in philanthropy. And so if you are not giving unrestricted dollars, in my opinion, it is questionable if you are really challenging the existing dynamics that are going on that created the problem in the first place. So I really think we need to move to this place of unrestricted donations from billionaires, especially. And, you know, they can give to folks who are experts in certain issue areas and certain and solving certain problems. And I think that will do so much more than saying, I'm going to give this away in my vision of what should happen, because that can honestly, truly, it sounds impossible, but it can really often do more harm than good. And we've seen this with a lot of, again, sometimes well-meaning billionaires who have really strong opinions about where their money should go that they think should override the opinions of others who are much, much more knowledgeable and closer to the issues. I agree with everything you said. And I think just to kind of like play that out, where in my own experience, working at nonprofits that were funded by restricted funding, meaning the foundation gives you money for a very dedicated cause, and you have really laborious reporting requirements to show how you spent your money. You need to plan how you're going to spend it. You get the money and then you need to report on spending it. But usually that money is restricted, meaning you can't hire new staff. You can't bill the hours that you spent applying for or reporting on the money back to the people who gave you the money. So it comes with this huge set of new burdens. Often you have to roll out a new program. You work in new countries or in new areas or with new partners that you've never worked with before. And it's really hard to get things like training, collaboration, brainstorming conversations funded in that restrictive setting. And it's really interesting to me to see this shift, because I don't know if, if you feel the same way, Lori, but I think for me, one of the big game changers is whether or not you can use the money to hire more people. And another thing that you and I have talked a lot about is, and a term that you taught me is the NGOification of political issues. So one of the challenges of restricted funding is that you have to be an organization often to receive funding. How do you fund a movement? How do you fund an individual without making them set up a whole structure around them that adds bureaucracy? And then if I am running 
an organization and I have, you know, even lean bureaucracy around me and I win a grant to do a huge new program, but that grant says I can't hire new staff. How are we supposed to do that without working ourselves to the bone or spreading ourselves thin and not doing it well? Or, you know, I make a living as a consultant that one of the workarounds to not hiring full-time staff is to farm things out to consultants until your own team and staff can catch up. It's a fucked up money-driven system. I'm constantly thinking about that phrase, you know, the phrase, teach a man to fish. Yes. It's a phrase that I Googled recently that comes from Taoism. I didn't realize that. But it's a Lao Tzu quote, that stoner guy in college who liked to uh, to quote the Tao Te Ching. Basically, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And I think a lot of philanthropy, nonprofit work, definitely international development, which is the corner of that work that I know the best, is built on this idea of capacity building, that it is a one-off evil these huge global programs. I'm going to fund a huge thing. And the goal of the funding, the goal of the program is that at the end of it all, it's going to be quote unquote sustainable. It's going to pay for itself. Somehow at the end of this program, everybody who touched it in any way is going to be able to replicate it without billions more new dollars coming in. And I think what I've found personally is that concept of capacity building is innately condescending at best at worst, colonialist and racist. It implies that all the knowledge and all the skills live with the money, usually in the West, and that all of the need for training lies in the person receiving the funds. But it also implies that the only thing lacking in making progress is more capacity versus resources. And I think what you and I have found you know, very privileged positions getting to travel the world and meet people making really incredible, brave change in a lot of different places is that often resources are the main thing missing. Yeah. Unrestricted resources. I think that's so, so well put. And what is amazing to me is that they made a TV show that even vaguely starts to get at some of these things, because these are not easy discussions to have in public. Like, these are the kinds of discussions that you and I have that I know we have with some of our colleagues that work in philanthropy or development or global health or, you know, all of these different kind of niche spaces. But they get very wonky very fast. They get very preachy at times. There's a lot of virtue signaling. There's a lot of digging your heels into, you know, a position that, you know, you feel like is definitive of your personality. Um, so the fact that they were able to even start to, you know, have a conversation about philanthropy, about wealth with a really compelling, you know, group of actors and, you know, some cute laughs and some funny storylines and some sexy characters, I think is like an overall a win, even if this show was a little uneven at times. I really would love to see people build on the conversations that this show might start and see more realistic discussions of, you know, some of the assumptions that all of us make all the time about community organizations, about wealthy billionaires, you know, about do-gooders. Like there's sort of flat caricatures that we have for all of these different categories of folks that need more rich detail if we if we're really gonna move some of these conversations forward. And I think right now with what's happening with FTX and effective altruism, it's a great moment of reckoning, right? We see journalistic sites that have been uncritically just seeing the praises of effective altruists. Bill Gates himself was speaking about how great the effective altruism movement is at the DevX World Conference earlier this year. And I think 
it's a really good moment to say, hey, what might we have gotten wrong, not just about that effective altruism movement, but about our approach to philanthropy in general, and how can we sort of shift that without having to see, you know, $25 billion evaporate overnight because of a very poorly cared for accounting spreadsheet in a millennial's computer. I thought you were going to say tablet. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) Smartphone. Smartphone, exactly. Yeah. That's true. And it, and it's interesting because I actually think, you know, going back to your point about whether or not the show succeeds, I don't have any critique of the billionaire or the tech venture guy being over the top because I think we see that in real life. These people are over the top. Their egos are over the top. They are caricatures. What ultimately makes this show for me fall a little flat is that there's a lot of other interpersonal stuff. And when I was done watching season one, I didn't feel that invested in any of the characters' lives. I would hope if this show continued that I would feel more about what's happening to the individuals. But I think they did a good job of taking on some really big issues and spoon fitting them to us with comedy. I love the costumes. It's a very colorful show. I love seeing rich people's homes. So there's lots of shots of Molly at home and her assistant and just the luxuries that she has and the luxuries she's constantly trying to spoil her staff and her friends. And so they lean into a lot of sort of literally jet set life, spa set life stuff. And that I think is fun. And it helps along the fact that really it's a critique of class. Agreed. That's so true. And I wonder if actually it's the spoon feeding that made this show a little bit less rich. Like if they had just gone all in and used even more realistic scenarios, you know, instead of sort of using a shorthand, I just wonder if that could have taken it a little bit far. Because I think folks are ready for this conversation, you know, more so than than maybe we would know. Like we've seen now with Abbott Elementary School, a show about school systems. We've saw The Office, obviously classic example. We see with Parks and Rec, like these really specific situations. And I'm not saying that Parks and Rec is exactly what it's like to work in government, but They allowed us to go pretty far into the world of a government employee, for example, or a paper salesman in the case of the office. And they didn't use shortcuts to suggest what it would be like. They really took us into the depths. And I think that's why those shows are so successful. I would love to see something similar with a philanthropic entity or a nonprofit entity and really go in on on the situations that we see every day. You know, okay, a really awkward bad donor wants to come and give you six figures. Now it lets you keep the lights on, but you have to go and say thank you to a really sketchy product. Like, what do you do? You know, I just think there's a lot of even more realistic scenarios that could use this kind of storytelling treatment. That would be a great overall boon for society, really. I would watch the shit out of that. And I think, like you know, Dunder Mifflin's corporate philanthropy team. <laughs> oh, God. The thing that this show does is a lot of ribbon cutting. And I couldn't even tell you exactly what the charity funds. Right. It's very vague. Each episode, you you don't really go that deep. But, you know, the conversation we've had today is, is pretty timely. It's going to continue to be timely. Just last week, Mackenzie Scott gave away another $2 billion. I, for one, am curious to see how that gets spent if we continue to hold her up as a model and also to see if we get a season two because, you know, I'll, I'll pretty much watch anything Maya Rudolph does. <laughs> Same. I think that's a great place to leave it. Maya Rudolph, call us and we will have you on for season two. You can tell us all about what it was like to drink the contaminated water from 
the water machine and if you and Olivier had a little dalliance on the side, we're ready to ask the hard hitting questions. Our editor is Karen White Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. DL Dallas Engram created our original theme song. And AK and the Hallucinations created our interstitial music. You can find DL on SoundCloud and AK on Spotify. Thank you for cringe watching. <laughs>